Well, it's all meaningless. So. Let's go to the Lord now and pray that He would increase our love and, and grant us greater love for God, love for one another, and clarity as we open up His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have loved us with an unfailing and everlasting love. If we learn anything from our God, it's that You are a God of love. John says that in 1 John 4, 7, that God is love. And there's no way that we can be in a saving relationship with a God who is love and not love others. There's no way we can love God whom we cannot see and yet hate our brother whom we can see. There's no way we can love God and hate those who bear His image. So I pray that our hearts would grow in love toward You, love toward the saints, love toward sinners, love toward the lost, and that we would be a people constantly growing in love. All throughout the Scripture we see this centrality of love. Love fulfills the law, Jesus says. Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And Jesus often would rebuke the religious leaders for their devotion to ceremonies and rituals and religiosity, and yet they missed the whole point. They, would, they were more concerned with observing ceremonies than they were with doing good to people on the Sabbath. And Lord, I pray that we would never be a people like that, but that we would be a people who love and if we are to love, it must be by grace, because we know naturally there's nothing but hatred in our hearts, nothing but selfishness in our hearts. We're a people who naturally love nothing more than ourselves, and yet you give us the grace of love. All of the gifts of the Spirit, all the graces of the Spirit are placed in our hearts at the moment of our conversion, and now we pray that those graces that have been planted like seeds within us would grow and blossom and flourish and that that fruit would be evident in our lives, Lord. Thank you for this local church. Thank you for the way you've blessed us and have grown us, and even more so have grown us in our relationship with you and our relationships with one another. And it's just a joy to see children running around playing on the Lord's Day, to see conversation and, and people uh, talking about the things of God and, and building relationships. And what a joy it is to be a part of this, this church and a part of such a faithful group of people who do love who love you, love one another, and have loved us since the moment we've been here, and it's just been a great joy for us, Lord. So thank you for this church. We pray that you would continue to use us as a means of proclaiming your love to the nations, your truth to the nations, starting here in Syracuse and beyond, and that you would give us much fruit for the praise of your own name. And now, God, as we open the Scripture, as we seek to hear yet again from you, from heaven, We pray that you would speak to us through your word as we know you will. We pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what the text says, what the text means by what it says, and how these truths apply to our own lives, and that you would give us the grace to live it out for your glory. And we pray all these things to that end. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, as we resume our verse-by-verse study of John's first epistle. And after a little bit of a break, it's good to be back in 1 John. Uh, We took a little break uh, with us traveling for the holidays and and also took a break for Christmas to consider the glory of Christmas. But it's good to be back now into John's flow of thought. So 1 John chapter 2, and the passage that I want to draw your attention to this morning is verses 24 through 28. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 28. And as you already know, John wrote this letter as a, kind of a polemical letter, uh, an apologetic letter. 
He wrote it as a refutation of the false teachers and their heretical notions that they were seeking to purvey in Asia Minor. Uh, he wrote it to refute those whom he deemed, in verses 18 to 23, antichrist, those who had defected from the faith, those who were denying the truth about Christ, denying the centrality of love, denying the necessity of obedience. In fact, in a word, they were presenting a counterfeit version of Christianity. They were repackaging Christianity, redefining Christ, redefining what it is to be a Christian. This was just an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism that had come in a Christian form. And I've told you before, new truth is never truth. It's always old heresy repackaged under a different label, under a different guise. But they were trying to deceive these saints, and of course this was a threat to them and very disturbing to these believers of Asia Minor. Um, if you have people rising up within your own church saying that you got it wrong, you have an erroneous view of Jesus, you've got an incorrect view of the Gospel, that's going to be a very disturbing thing to hear. So this was disturbing to those believers. And this obviously affected John. John loved them. John spent the last portion of his life there in Asia Minor ministering to the churches there. And they had become very dear to his heart. Very dear to the pastor, John. Uh, In fact, that becomes evident as you read throughout the letter. He often refers to them as his dear children or his beloved children, his little children. He had a deep pastoral, fatherly-like parental love for those to whom he ministered. And out of that love for them, he writes this letter to refute their heretical notions and provide them with a series of tests by which you can distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. Between true salvation and false salvation. It becomes for us a book by which we can determine if we are true believers or not. Those three tests serve as the litmus test for true salvation. And those three tests, you already know, are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The true Christian believes the truth doctrinally, obeys the truth morally, and loves in truth socially. Those three categories define the life of a Christian, a true believer. And we've already seen these tests before in the book, John just keeps recycling through these same tests over and over again, and it becomes a reminder for us that how dull we are at remembering and understanding the truth. So John continues to drive home these themes. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 2 was really cycle 1. With the start of verse 18 and going all the way through the end of chapter 3, John gives us cycle 2. And he yet again begins with the most important of them, the doctrinal test. The Christological test, a proper view of Christ. If you get it wrong there, everything else is irrelevant. Everything flows from that. You get Christ right, you savingly believe in Christ, love and obedience flow from that. So John begins with the most important test. And this is really part two of the doctrinal test. In verses 18 to 23, he began by exposing the Antichrist, those who were opposed to the true Christ, who were set against the true Christ. And he defined them for us. And having done that, he now comes in verses 24 to 28 to define our response to these antichrists. Here is the way we should respond. Let's read these verses again. 1 John 2, verses 24 through 28. John writes, As for you, 
As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. The word that should have leaped out to you as we read through those verses is the word abide. And the word abide, it's used six times in those five verses. It's the word meno, meno. And the basic meaning of the word is to continue, to stay, to remain. It's not a word we use often. You know, you don't tell your wife when she leaves, I'm just going to abide here. But it's a biblical word, an important biblical word. In fact, it's one of John's favorite words. John uses it many times in his writings. In fact, he uses it 23 times alone in this epistle. John has much to say about abiding. The word denotes both communion and perseverance. Communion and perseverance. As believers, we have been brought into a saving union with Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to be in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we demonstrate that reality by our perseverance in the faith, by continuing in the truth, by abiding. So John uses this word as a perfect description of both our response to the Antichrist as well as our relationship with the true Christ. We must abide. The issue really is this. There are a plethora of false teachers all around us who seek to deceive us, who seek to lead us astray. Many anti-Christ who propagate and purvey their lies and their damning heresies in hopes to lead us astray. And the way we respond is we have to abide in Christ. We have to continue in Him. But why? Why do we abide in Christ? How do we abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in Christ? What motivates the Christian to abide in Christ? John's going to answer those questions in these five verses by highlighting four features of this abiding. Four features. We looked at the first two a few weeks ago, but perhaps it'll be good for us to go back through those for a moment because it's been so long. Uh, The first one we looked at is the call. We saw the call for abiding. And we saw that in verse 24. Look at verse 24. John says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. As for you, in contrast to the false teachers, in contrast to the Antichrist who defect from the faith, who seek to deceive you, as for you, you need to let that which you've heard from the beginning abide in you. What's that? What is it we've heard from the beginning? It's the truth. It's the truth. And in the context, it's the truth about Christ. The truth about the Gospel. The truth about the person and work of Jesus including His deity and humanity and incarnation and substitutionary death and salvation by faith in Him. This is the truth, John says, that you've had from the beginning. The heretics come with their new truth, but you've had the truth. You've had it ever since you became a Christian. 
And you know who you heard it from. You heard it from the Bible. You heard it from the apostles in their writings. You have the truth, and you need to abide in that truth. So that's the call. John says, abide in the truth. But then secondly, we saw the reasons to abide. There are three reasons that John gives us in this text. If you want to know why you should be a Christian, and why you should continue to be a Christian, John gives us three reasons. We looked at two of them last time. The first one is in the second half of verse 24. Look there again. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Why? Because if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. If you abide in, if you abide in Christ, if you abide in Him, then you abide in God. You abide in God. It's a package deal. God is a trinity of persons. To deny one person of the trinity is to deny God Himself. And specifically, to deny the revelation about Him in Christ is to deny God. Anyone who does not receive Christ for who He is does not have God. The Muslims do not have God. They reject Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses reject the truth about Christ. They do not have God. You could add the Mormons to that list and many others. But if you reject the Son, you do not have the Father. But if you believe the truth about Christ, and you abide in the truth about Christ, you have God, both the Father and the Son. So that's reason number one. But a second reason to abide in Christ is given in verse 25. Look there, verse 25. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. God has made a promise to all believers, to all Christians, and that promise, that glorious, magnificent promise, is eternal life. Eternal life. And again, eternal life doesn't begin at death. Eternal life doesn't begin when we get to heaven. Eternal life begins when? Now. It begins when we come to know the Savior. It begins at the moment of our salvation. Remember, eternal life is not merely a duration of life. It's not merely a length of life. It's not merely a a long time to live. It's a kind of life. It's a type of life. To have eternal life is to have the life of God in the soul of a man. That's what eternal life is. As you know, the wicked, they're going to live on consciously forever. The wicked are never going to cease to be conscious. In hell, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They will weep and gnash their teeth. They will be conscious throughout eternity under the wrath of God. But that's not eternal life. That's eternal death. Because eternal life is to know and be in fellowship with the God who is life. To be out of that fellowship is to abide in death. So eternal life then is to know God, it's to possess the life of God in our soul, and it's to enjoy that life both now and forever. Both now and forever. Of course, the fullness of that life waits the new heavens and the new earth. We don't possess the fullness of it. We don't have glorified bodies. We're not living in a perfect world free from sin, free from a curse. That's to come, but we already possess that life now. And John says, the evidence that you have that life now, the evidence that you're going to enter into the fullness of that life hereafter, is that you abide in Christ. Continue in Him. So that's the motivation. 
That's the motivation. Eternal life. And those serve then as two reasons to abide in Christ. Because if you do, you abide in God and you have assurance of eternal life. And that takes us back to the purpose for which John wrote the book, doesn't it? 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John wrote to provide believers with assurance and by abiding in Christ we can know just that, that indeed we have eternal life. Well, John will give us one more reason in verse 28 to abide and we'll look at that in a little bit. But for now, in verse 26, John now makes a little, of a, little bit of a transition and he describes for us the threat to abiding. And that's where we pick up this morning. So in light of these great promises that God has given us, these great reasons, these great motivations to abide, why would anyone be tempted to not abide? Why would anyone be tempted to go astray? Why would anyone be tempted to leave Christ? What's the threat? What's the hindrance to our abiding? The answer comes in verse 26. Look there. John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. The threat for our abiding is the false teachers who seek to deceive us. The Antichrist. uh, The seducers who would lead us astray with their error. In fact, John says, I wrote the whole book for that reason. These things I've written to you. The whole letter, I wrote this whole letter because of those trying to deceive you. That's what a loving pastor does, isn't it? He warns his people of error. And that's what loving Christians do. It's not just a pastor's job or elder's job. It's the job of every Christian to warn those whom they love of spiritual danger. To warn those whom they love of false teaching. So John, out of deep love for these people, writes this letter to refute those who were trying to deceive them. Now that word deceive, the word planao, it's a word we've seen before, the word is, means to wonder. means to wonder. It's where we get the English word planet from. That's what a planet is. It's a wandering body. It just wanders around in outer space. And so it means to wonder. It means to deviate from the right path, to be moved away, to be led astray. That's what John is saying. That's what the false teachers are doing. They're trying to cause you to wander away from the truth, to deviate from the truth and embrace their errors, their lies, their damning notions. That's what they do. And, they, and they, they're so dangerous because, again, as I've said before, they don't come in with their trumpet and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. I'm trying to lead you astray. They don't do that. They're so dangerous because often they come into the church and they masquerade as Christians. They mask themselves as believers and often as pastors and teachers. Listen to how Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That's what they do. They mask themselves as messengers from God, when in reality they are emissaries of Satan. They mask themselves as messengers from heaven, and they are in reality messengers straight from hell. But that's what they do. They're clever. They're deceptive. 
Jesus warned us about them. What did He say? Matthew chapter 7. He said that false teachers are wolves in sheep's clothing. They come, they pretend to be shepherds, but in reality they're ravenous wolves whose desire is to devour the flock, to destroy them with their damning lies. That's the danger. That's the danger. Remember back in verse 19, John says they actually started out in the church. They went out from us. That's where they began. They started out in the church. They claimed to be Christian. They claimed to be one of us. Then slowly they introduced their new truth, then left the church and in all likelihood took others along with them. That's what false teachers do. They start in the church very often. So we don't have to look out for false teachers only in the world, but even more dangerously within the church. Now, how are these false teachers seeking to deceive them? What is it that they were telling them? Well, obviously, we've seen this many, many times in the letter. They were denying the truth about Jesus. They denied that He was the Christ. They denied that He was the Son of God. They denied that He came in the flesh. They denied that He was the God-man. That much is obvious. From chapter 1, it was clear that they denied the reality of sin. They denied the reality of sin. They even claimed to be without sin altogether. And John says anyone who does that is a liar. In chapter 3, verse 7, it becomes apparent that they were actually promoting the idea of licentiousness, or you could call it antinomianism. This idea that I don't need to obey God, His commandments are irrelevant, I can be right with God and yet indulge in sin. I can live in unrighteousness. In fact, just look over at chapter 3 for a moment. We'll look at this in detail in a few weeks. But in verse 7, John says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. There's that word. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Why would John need to say that? Why would John need to say, let no one deceive you? Because that's what they were doing. They were trying to trick the believers of Asia Minor into believing that they could be right with God and yet live in sin. That they could just do whatever they want, live it up, it's all good, I'll go to heaven anyway because I've asked Jesus in my heart, I've accepted Christ into my life, those same lies that we hear today. John says, don't let them deceive you. So they denied the reality of Christ, they denied the reality of sin, they denied the necessity of holiness, and of course they denied the centrality of love. That becomes clear. If you go to chapter 4 for a moment, chapter 4, John says, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not know God, does not love, does not know God, for God is love. Then you go down to verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So clearly, the false teachers that John wrote to refute were denying the need to love. They had this new truth. They said, look guys, we have this new spiritual plane of truth, this mystical knowledge that you don't have. We're superior. You need to get with it and we're better than you. And that led them to arrogance and pride because knowledge often puffs up, especially when it's false knowledge and not true biblical knowledge. So that's what the false teachers were doing. They were seeking to deceive them with their error. And John writes this letter to refute them. But so as in John's day, so it is in our day, there are still many false teachers around us who would seek to lead us astray. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Oneness Pentecostals, all these people who deny the truth about who Jesus is 
and we must look out for them. We must warn others about them, and we must abide in Christ. So that's the threat. That's the threat. False teachers. But now, the question is, how do we overcome them? How do we avoid their deception? How do we defeat them? What help do we have against them? John's going to answer that in verse 27. Look there. Verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Again, John says, as for you. As if to make a stark contrast between Christians and Antichrist. John's made it clear, an Antichrist is someone who starts in the church very often, denies the truth about Christ, leaves the church, and then seeks to deceive the faithful. John says, as for you, you let that truth, which you've heard, abide in you. How do we do that? Because the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. That takes us back to what he said in verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. Verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You ever had somebody tell you that, uh, you know, touch not God's anointed? You try to correct a false teacher and they tell you, touch not God's anointed. Or they talk about wanting the anointing or praying for the anointing. You ever heard that? If you're a Christian, you don't have to pray for the anointing. You've already got it. You've already got it. We have an anointing. John, this is an inclusive we. John and his readers and all Christians. If you're a believer, you have an anointing. What's that? What's the anointing? Well, we talked about it last time. Uh, the word anointing would refer to a, pro, a, a time in which people would have oil rubbed on their head as an ordination of them to a, an office, a prophet, a priest, or a king, or whatever the case may be. And oftentimes, this anointing was connected with the coming of the Holy Spirit upon that person to empower them for some task. So John says, as Christians, we have an anointing. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. He's come to live within us. He is within us, and He does it to teach us the truth. So back to verse 27. The anointing which you received from Him abides in you. You have an anointing from Him, from God. From Christ. God has poured out His Spirit upon you. He abides in you. And He will be with you forever. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't have the anointing, you're not a Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Every believer possesses the Holy Spirit. And the anointing lives within us. And He lives within us in order to teach us you know, the Spirit has many ministries. The Spirit obviously regenerates our hearts. He gives us the new birth. He sanctifies us. He empowers us for Christian living. He empowers us for witness and evangelism. But one thing the Holy Spirit does, according to this passage, is He teaches us. He teaches us. John says, The anointing which you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Why? Because the Spirit does. The Spirit teaches us. Now, a quick point of clarification here. When John says you have no need for anyone to teach you, he's not denying that we need human teachers. Right? He's not denying that. If he was denying that, then why would he even write this letter and try to teach the believers of Asia Minor? 
they don't need a teacher, John. If that's what John meant, then you being here this morning is pointless listening to me preach and teach to you. You can just go home. You don't need me, right? But that's not what John is saying. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. 1 Corinthians 12 says that God has given teachers to the church. God has given teachers to the church. In Acts chapter 8, familiar story to some of us, Philip is preaching the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he runs into the eunuch, and the eunuch is reading a passage from Isaiah. It just happens to be Isaiah 53. And he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? Right? We get that. You ever been reading your Bible and thought, what does this mean? I mean, I, I don't understand this. I wish someone would tell me what this means. I need a study Bible or a commentary. Or I need to call a friend. That's because we do need human teachers. We do need to study the Bible together in community to help us grow in our understanding. John is not saying that we don't need human teachers. We have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. And so to come to the conclusion that John says we don't need a teacher at all would be an unbiblical conclusion. So what is John saying then? What is John saying? John is saying this. If you're a believer, you ultimately don't need any person to come and teach you the fundamental principles of the Christian faith yet again that you already have. You don't need these heretics with their new truth trying to teach you what you already know that is the real truth. You don't need them. You've already been taught. You've already been taught. At the moment at your salvation, the Spirit of God regenerated your heart, removed the blinders, removed the veil, opened your eyes, illumined your mind, and drew you to Christ so that you knew, loved, and believed the truth. It's a supernatural miracle, isn't it? I can remember a time in my life when Christianity was nothing but the silly thing I did on Sunday because my parents used the pots and pans and banged them and, and put water all over me, to whatever they could to get me out of bed and get me to church, right? I didn't want to go. I mean, who cares? I'll pray before I go to bed. I don't want to die. And then all of a sudden, the gospel came, the lights came on, and Christ became everything. Why? Because I got smarter? Because I just got a lot better in my thinking? No, because God supernaturally taught me the truth and drew me to Christ. That's true for every believer to some degree. The Spirit of God has taught you the truth. So John says, you don't need these false teachers. You don't need their new truth. You don't need their lies. You've been taught the truth already, savingly and effectually, by the Holy Spirit. His anointing teaches you about all things. So this deals with several of the aspects of the Spirit's work. It deals with regeneration. It deals with inspiration. It deals with illumination. And all of these works of the Spirit are interconnected. You see, the work of inspiration is the process in which this Holy Spirit superintended the writings of the Bible so that they wrote exactly what He wanted them to write. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired there, theanustas, means God breathed. Literally, God breathed. All Scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God. It is the Word of God. In John 16.13, Jesus told the apostles, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Often Christians claim that promise for themselves, but I think that's a specific promise to the apostles 
that the Spirit of God would come upon them and would lead them into all the truth so that they could write Holy Scripture. He would bring all the truth to their minds and now we have that truth in the Bible. But that promise to Christ and His apostles then extends to us when regeneration takes place. The Spirit gives us an understanding of the truth. And then through His work of illumination throughout the rest of the Christian life, He continues to clarify the truth for us and give us understanding. Luke 24 says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's illumination. It's the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to understand and grasp the truth. The Spirit of God does that for all believers today. This means, by the way, that we must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, right? We must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We can't read the Bible with our own philosophical, intellectual capacities and think we're going to grasp the message in a saving and sanctifying and profound way. If we're going to grasp the Word of God, we're going to need the Spirit to open our minds and give us understanding. So when we read the Bible, we need to pray. Pray before we read the Bible. Pray during our Bible reading. Pray after our Bible reading. Our Bible reading must be carried out in a spirit of prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, by the way, teaches us in conjunction with His Word. He teaches us through the Word. It's the Word and the Spirit. You know, you have people all the time saying things like, you know, I wish God would teach me His will. I wish God would speak to me. And then when they say that, you tell them, open your Bible, right? God is speaking through the Scripture. And if you want the Spirit to teach you, you have to read His Word. <coughs> you know, one of the problems in our culture today is that specifically within the church, is that many professing Christians are biblically illiterate. That's a major problem. How can you expect to detect error? How can you expect to overcome deception when you don't know the truth? When you don't know the truth. It's often been said that the best way to identify counterfeit money is to know what the real thing looks like. And then you'll be able to detect the wrong thing. The best way to detect error, false teaching, false doctrine, is to know the truth. And the way you know the truth is you read the truth. You study the truth. But many in our culture are biblically illiterate. And this becomes the feeding ground for false teachers. For false teachers. John Calvin said that ambiguity is the fortress for heretics. In other words, a lack of clarity on the truth is where heretics thrive. When you don't have clarity on what the truth means, they run rampant. That's why often you'll find compromising teachers will use very confusing language. Very ambiguous language, not straightforward, so they can sneak in their errors. But that's the problem. Many don't know the Word. Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, will feed on that. They prey on that. They're looking for people who don't know the Bible. In fact, the moment they find out you do know the Bible, guess what they're going to do? They're going to mark your house and never come back. They're not looking for a conversation about the truth. They're looking for people who are unsuspecting, spiritually gullible, people who don't know anything so they can deceive them with their error. That's what they do. They thrive on that. So we must be diligent students of the Bible. You know, often Christians at the start of a new year use that time to reflect on how they'll read the Bible. And I would encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, I would... Uh, exhort you to find one. There are many Bible reading plans out there. You could read a chapter a day, two chapters a day. 
If you just read one chapter of the Old Testament every day and one chapter of the New Testament every day, you'll read in three years, you'll read the New Testament three times and the Old Testament once. And there's a good chance you're going to know the Bible better in three years than you know it today. So get into the Word. Dig into the truth. And then we'll know the truth and we'll be able to overcome deception. In Ephesians 4, we've read this before, there the spiritual children, those who are immature in the faith, they're described as those who are tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. They're people who are not solidly rooted in the Word and sound teaching. But if you remember back in chapter 2, go to chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. Remember, John makes it clear there that spiritual growth is connected to our knowledge of the Word. He says there at the bottom of verse 14, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. To be strong, to overcome the evil one and his deceptions, we must have the Word of God abiding in us. As Paul told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. We have to let the Word dominate our hearts. And as we do that, as we read the Bible in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, as we let the truth reign supreme in our hearts, we'll understand the truth, we'll be able to detect deception and overcome it. But the Spirit of God then is the help. He's the built-in safeguard. He's the protector, the indwelling protector that enables us to understand the truth and avoid error. And John says you can, you can trust that. You can trust what the Holy Spirit has taught you because His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. What the false teachers are telling you, that's not true. What the witnesses and the Mormons tell you, that's not true. But what the Holy Spirit has taught you through the Gospel, through the Scripture, it's the absolute certain truth of God and it can be believed. So John says, just as it has taught you, so you abide in Him. Abide in Christ. Abide in the Son. So that's the help, the Holy Spirit. But now fourthly, or finally, in verse 28, John comes back to the reasons for abiding. He's given us two reasons. If you abide in Christ, you abide in God. If you abide in Christ, you have eternal life. But now there's a third reason in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Again, John addresses his readers as his children out of his deep pastoral love for them. And he reiterates this call to abide. He's saying this. He's saying continue in the truth about Christ. Continue to believe the truth. You can't abide in Christ unless you continue to believe the truth about Christ. So continue in Christ. Continue to believe in the One to whom the Spirit testifies, according to John 15.26. But why? Why should you continue in Christ? Here's an eschatological reason, an end times reason. Abide in Him so that for this reason, for this purpose, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. It's amazing, isn't it? 
Christ is coming again. He is going to descend from heaven in glory. And when He comes, there's going to be two kinds of people. There are going to be those who have boldness. Can you imagine Christ in all of His glory descending from heaven and you stand with boldness, looking with confidence for the coming of Christ? That's going to be one group. The other group is going to be a group of people who shrink away from Him in shame. That brings back my memory of Revelation where the people are crying out for the rocks to crush them. They're going to flee from God. They're going to seek to hide from God. They're going to beg the rocks to crush them that they might escape the wrath of God and the Lamb because they would rather be crushed by rocks than be crushed by the wrath of God. There's two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. John says when He appears, when He appears, the word phanerao means to make manifest, make clear, make known, make visible. It's used. The word's used in reference to the first coming of Christ in chapter 1. Back in verse 1, John said that Christ is the one who was with the Father and was phanerao, made manifest, made visible to us. That's the incarnation. The invisible God became a man, became visible, but now we don't see Him. Why? Because He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, sitting enthroned at the highest position of authority in the universe. But He will come again. And those who mock Him today will no longer mock Him then. Those who stand before preachers today and Christians today and mock their God, those who persecute the church, those who seek to eliminate Christians, they will flee in great fear and shame when Christ and His glory is revealed. He's coming a second time. And when He comes again, He's going to judge the nations. He's going to, all the nations are going to stand before Him. People judge Christ today, but Christ will judge them then. People want to abuse Christ today, but Christ will be the one pouring out His judgment on that day. When He comes again, and you know this idea of this sissified Jesus that our culture gives to us? Jesus is just this sissy guy who is weeping eternal tears of sorrow if you don't come to Him. That is not the biblical Christ. That is an idol of evangelical Christianity. The biblical Jesus is not going to come begging people to come to Him. He's going to come in great power, great glory, and He's going to destroy His enemies. He's going to destroy them. If you think what terrorists do is bad, wait till you see what Christ does to those who hate Him, those who despise Him. So the second coming is going to be good news, but it's going to be bad news. Paul Washer put it this way, I've got good news, God is here. I've got bad news, God is here. Depends on what side you're on. For the Christian, for those who continue in Christ, the second coming is glorious. Why? Because He's coming for us for salvation. In fact, Titus 2.13 calls it our blessed hope. Our blessed hope. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Believers are those who love His appearing. We long for it. We can't wait. We, we wait with eager expectation for our Lord to come. We look forward to it. We cry out with the saints of Revelation, Amen, come Lord Jesus, come. We cry out with Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, O Lord, come! Come! Often, 
perhaps Christians today aren't looking forward to Christ coming, or at least they're going to Him because we love the world too much. But if we set our eyes not on the world, not on the things of the world, but we set it on the glory of Christ, the glory of salvation, we'll have this kind of attitude. We want Him to come. We want Christ to come. That's the good news of the second coming. For the believer, it's a blessed hope. It's a glorious hope. Hebrews 9 says that when Christ comes, He's going to come with, not, with reference, not with reference to sin, but He's coming for salvation. He's coming for salvation. He appeared the first time to die. He's coming the second time to bring us into the fullness of that salvation for which He purchased for us on the cross. 1 Peter 1.7 says, By persevering in the faith, our faith results in glory, honor, and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the second coming, friends. You suffer now. You're tempted now. You're depressed now. Downtrodden. Miserable now. But when Christ comes again, all sin, all shame, all curses, all removed, and will be ushered in to perfect glory. Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we will be with Him, be revealed with Him in glory. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Second coming is good news. You say, my body aches. It won't ache anymore. I'm, I'm getting 30, right? We've been, we've been there. My back's hurting. That's going to go away, right? We're going to be glorified, perfected, and we're going to reign with our Savior. But for the unbeliever, the second coming is bad news. It's bad news. Listen to how 2 Thessalonians 1... In fact, turn there with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here Paul is trying to encourage these suffering saints. And he does so by informing them that God will avenge them. God's going to destroy their enemies. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want to start reading to you in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 6. Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's the bad news for the unbeliever. When Christ comes, He gives relief to His people, but He brings judgment, retribution upon the wicked, and they'll pay the penalty of eternal damnation away from Him in hell. Now go to Revelation chapter 19. One more passage here. Revelation chapter 19. It's good news. Christ is coming. You're a believer, that's good news. You can have confidence. You can have boldness. By the way, you don't have confidence because of you. We're not bold because we're just so good and righteous. We're bold because by continuing in Christ, we know that we've been robed in His righteousness, that He gave Himself for us, so we stand perfect before Him. 
When He comes again, we're going to present, be presented perfect before Him. But the wicked can't have that confidence. Look at verse 11. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This is Christ. And in righteousness He judges and wages war. You need to know this. When Christ comes, salvation for His people... If you're not His people, if you don't belong to Him, He's coming to judge and wage war. Christ is not a sissy. He's a warrior. He's not a beggar. He's a powerful conqueror. Verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written on Him which no one knows except Himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And in the context, I think this is because He's killing His enemies. Christ is going to be dipped in the blood of His enemies. And His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, Kings of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. What are these birds doing? They're going to feast on the corpses of those who are slain by Christ. Come, gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast worshipped His image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from His mouth. What a powerful depiction of the second coming. That's what Christ is going to do. If you're on the wrong side of history, this is bad news for you. If you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer, if you haven't believed the truth about Christ, if you don't continue in the truth about Christ, when He comes again, you're going to shrink away from Him in shame in fear, because He's coming to dash His enemies to pieces. However, for us, for us who believe, for us who hold fast, because He holds us fast, for us who continue, the second coming is glorious. It's glorious. So it's a paradox. It's bad news, yet it's good news. And there's only two kinds of people. There's only two kinds of people. Christian or Antichrist. Those for Him or against Him. Believer or unbeliever. Those who will be confident and those who will be ashamed. Friends, which are you? Which are you? Are you a believer? If not, this Christ, who will soon come again, you say He's not coming again for a long time. That may be true. It might be another thousand years. I couldn't imagine what 30-20 would be like. Or 30-30. But it may be a long time, but Paul Washer makes a good point. He says in the next 100 years, either He's coming here to you or you're going there to Him. He's coming or you're going to Him through death. Either way it goes, you're going to go to Him, you're going to stand before Him, 
And friends, that Christ who one day will come in wrath is the very same Christ who right now, if you're not a Christian, His wrath is set against you. His anger abides upon you at every moment of every day, of every year, of every second of your life. And the only way to be delivered from that wrath is through the very one whose wrath is against you. Because the very one whose wrath is against you is the very one who bore that wrath on the cross for all who believe in Him. So if you're not a Christian today, my encouragement to you is that you would come to Christ, that you would bow to Him in faith, and then you would have this great hope and boldness in the second coming. We go now with boldness to the throne of grace. But Matthew Henry says then we'll go to the throne of judgment with boldness. And we look forward to that day. So we must abide in Christ. We must abide in Christ. We must continue in Him. We must hold fast to the truth about Him. The Spirit is the one who helps us. The threat is the false teachers who seek to deceive us. And the reasons to abide are because if you do, you abide in God. If you abide in Christ, you have eternal life. And if you abide in Christ, you can have confidence at the second coming. Is that enough motivation for you? It is for me, friends. It is for me. So let's abide in Christ for our good and His glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that You've given us many promises and yet many warnings in the Scripture. And the second coming of our Lord is both a promise and yet a warning. It's a promise to us who have believed, to us who have placed our hope in the Savior. But what a warning and dreadful day it will be for those who have not. And our hearts break for those people. We know people like that in our families and and among our friends and schoolmates and our fellow workers. We know people, Lord, who do not know, know or love Christ, who are not abiding in Him. And our desire is to see them saved. If there are people here this morning who are not in Christ, our hope is that they would come to know Him as Savior, that they might have confidence when He returns, that they might have the hope and assurance of eternal life, that they might abide in the truth about God. And for us who have believed, Lord, we know that the only way we're going to persevere is if You hold us and You preserve us. And so we pray that You would do exactly what You've promised, that uh, You would hold us safely in Your hand. We know that Christ gives His sheep eternal life. They never perish. No one can snatch us out of His hand. So we pray that we would be safely held in the hands of our Savior. Be with us now. Thank you for hearing our worship of speaking to us through the Scripture. And now, Lord, it's our desire to sing your praise in response, to take the supper, and to glorify the God who has given us such great hope. And it's to your glory we pray. Amen.